Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Yeah, Father, we just consecrate this time to you. We just continue in that space and posture of worship. Um, I think today, even especially this topic, will hit practical things, but we just... I just pray we'd open our hearts to receive from you. Would you just strike us with awe and wonder? Would you retool, re-paradigm us today as we talk about this ancient practice called Sabbath? I submit my life, my words, my ideas to you, and I just ask, Lord, would you be speaking to each of us? Amen. All right, friends. Well, for those that don't know, Uh, We gather once a month, and we've been slowly marching our way through six spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, and depending on your tribe or circle within the body of Christ, this is kind of trendy right now, talking about rule of life, spiritual practices, Um, not trying to like stake any claim in that, but we didn't just hop on the bandwagon. It was years back, we did a teaching on the commands of Jesus. And when we went to like do that teaching, we realized there's a bunch of things Jesus never commands, but assumes that his followers do. And that's where these six practices that we've been kind of slowly working through the last six months have come from. So we've covered prayer, community, fasting, and generosity. And today, bottom center, we're talking about Sabbath. These are not in any particular order. If we're doing proper, good biblical theology, we probably would have started with Sabbath for some reasons that will become apparent today, but we're just not that organized. So here it is, number five. Um, Charlton wants the Wi-Fi password, here you go. (laughs) Technology, spooky. Uh, Where was I? So, and, and again, you know, we're not naive. I know doing one sermon or one teaching on a practice is not gonna make us all like Jesus gurus in practicing that. What we're doing is introducing these, and then I'm continuing to build out some resources on the website, and we will revisit them. But we'd love for, you know, smaller house church communities, D groups, learning cohorts, rule of life workshops. We will keep coming back to these practices again and again and again. And the goal here is that 10 years down the road, these six things would be more naturally integrated into our lives as followers of Jesus, because we believe they are for our benefit and spiritual formation to become like him, okay? And these are not exhaustive, we'll probably add more, but if you care about what Jesus has to say, he assumes that you are doing these six things. So we'll do three parts today. I'm gonna reflect on kind of a theology of Sabbath, just looking at some biblical texts. I would love to sit in them for hours. I'm gonna go through that part as quickly as I can, maybe 10 minutes or so. We're gonna do a little nerdy philosophy, science stuff, and then we'll have kind of a part two, and we'll talk about more like the existential cultural reason why I think Sabbath is so important and so prophetic for us. And then we'll end with a few practicals of here's six tips of how to Sabbath. So here we go. So I'm going to read these scriptures. So these are both uh, excerpts from the Ten Commandments. So in the story of Exodus, 
the Sabbath is one of the first five commandments. It takes up 37% of the Ten Commandments. And it's the only commandment that is a spiritual practice. And then Deuteronomy, which basically just means law again, is a recapitulation of the Ten Commandments written to the next generation who didn't live through the Exodus experience. So it's the same commandments, but then there's a little twist, little interpretation going on there because Moses is speaking to a different audience when he records them. So Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested. In the Hebrew here it's Shabbat, means stop, on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5, same law, same command. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your ox nor your donkey or any animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest. Again, same word rest, but the Hebrew in this instance is nuach, which means to settle in and reside, to make a home in, uh, as you do. Remember that, that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So the short observation here is Sabbath is a command. And we could probably talk till we're blue in the face and argue about whether that command still stands today from the Old Testament law. I mean, it's, it's not like one of those random, you know, of the 613 laws in Leviticus. It's not like a random tangential cultural law. It's not a dietary law. It's not a clothing law for the priest. It's not some obscure law. It's, it's in the Ten Commandments. Um, I think even still, you could probably make a good argument that it's not binding for Christians today. My hope today is that even if, even if you don't think this is binding or that we should still follow this command, I would hope to convince you that for your own sake, sanity, and spiritual health and life following Jesus, you should practice some form of Sabbath. So the origins here, there's kind of two origins hinted at even in these texts. The Exodus command roots this in the creation narrative of Genesis 2. And then the Deuteronomy command roots it in the Exodus narrative of liberation. So creation into slavery bondage and now new creation. So, I mean, the concept of Sabbath as a practice and an idea of rest is, is a plumb line and woven into the entire fabric of the Old Testament narrative. So let me just read a few things here. This is Genesis 2, verse 2 and 3. But, uh, so this is the end of the creation narrative. The six days have just been um, filled, created. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. He ceased, he Shabbat, from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating and all he had done. And there's all kinds of interesting cultural history we could go into and 
the significance of the number seven, meaning completion, and the patterns of seven in the creation narrative. Most of the lines of the creation narrative poem have seven words in them. And then the actual word for completeness in Hebrew, the letters are just jumbled around to spell the word seven in Hebrew. So there's all this like crazy Bible scholar stuff you can nerd out on. It's very fun. I can send you a 40-page article <laughs> if you want. I'll post it on the Sabbath practice on our website. But I'm not going to dive into that today. I'm, I'm going to read a quote from a Bible scholar instead. This is uh, Michael Morales. He says, the seventh day is the first object that is sanctified and set apart as holy. Everything before that is good, but this day is special. It's sanctified, set apart as holy. By this consecration, God creates the seventh day. I mean, this is key of what we're going to sit on here. He creates the seventh day, a cathedral in time. That's a phrase from a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel. Forming a temporal space and filling it with holiness so that there, in the culmination of creation, forming and then filling, kiss each other. And, and this is kind of a crazy countercultural idea, especially nowadays too, but especially in the ancient Near East. Right? Deities, where do deities preside? They preside in lands and territories, on mountains and in holy places, in temples and in statues. But this God, the God of creation who made all things, the earth is his temple, and he resides in time. The place where you go to meet this God is consecrated time, not a special mountain or a special temple or a special place. And this is where it gets really fun. I promise not to go too long here. I, I gave myself a rule, like, five minutes. You have to stop. Five minutes. So what is time? Like, this phrase, cathedral in time, was just, like, blowing my mind all week. There's a lot of history here. Uh, Newtonian physics, so Isaac Newton invented calculus, the integral, derivatives, uh, the apple in the tree, England, gravity, all that fun stuff. So the foundational assumption for the breakthrough of Newtonian physics was that time and space are absolute entities, unchanging. So that the world plays out like motion on a piece of graph paper. And in order for his laws to work and predict events and forces and energies, right, those two things, time and space, have to be absolute. Come modern physics, turn of the 20th century, and some really bright physicists are doing a lot of experiments in electromagnetism with light waves, and they're starting to realize that mechanical laws, Newtonian laws, do not work when you get really small or when you get really big. They work for the everyday experience of human beings on planet Earth, but when you go to the extremes of that, they break down. They just are nonsense. They give nonsensical answers. And so Einstein, he comes along and basically says, what if Newton's wrong? What if time and space are not neutral absolutes? What if time and space are relative? I know even that sentence, you're like, I don't even understand what you just said. Um, I don't know if I fully do either. So let, here, here's essentially what Einstein goes on to publish in two papers. First paper in 1905, General Relativity, and then a decade or so later in his Special Relativity, which deals more with acceleration and force. But General Relativity, he basically throws out there, time and space are not absolute. The one true enduring absolute that has no referential frame of reference is light. The speed of light is 670 million miles per hour, and it never changes. So you could be running right alongside the speed of light, 
at 660 million miles per hour, and it's just a little ahead of you, and it's still, it's still running ahead of you 670 million miles per hour. The speed of light never changes. Time and space, on the other hand, do, and they're relative to your frame of reference. You have no idea how excited I am <laughs> to get into this. Pretend that there were two twins born. They grow up, become astronauts, and at 30 years of age, they're competing to be the first human to hop on a rocket and fly to a distant solar system, traveling at something close to the speed of light. Not the speed of light, but maybe like half the speed of light or three-fourths the speed of light. So these two twins, they're both 30 years of age here at the start of the axis. And to simplify things here, I've just made this two-dimensional. So you have the dimension of time, which is a singular one-directional one arrow, which is a whole crazy thing in and of itself. It's one of the big questions of physics. Why does time only go one direction? Why can't it go both directions like all other dimensions? Anyways, <laughs> five minutes. I got five minutes. Okay, so time. And then we have a singular dimension of space going up. So I want you to think about time and space in a ratio, in relationship to each other. That's what a graph does. It puts things in a ratio so we can visualize them. So twin A, at the last minute, backs out and says, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to make it on this rocket. I want my sister to go. And so she steps out, and she continues her career, and she proceeds to live her life here on Earth. So she's the blue arrow. And she progresses through about 10 years of time. While time is ticking here on Earth, as we all experience it as a consistent absolute that un is unchanging to our senses, her sister hops on this rocket, pictured at the top corner, and takes off at roughly two-thirds the speed of light and heads off to this distant galaxy. And she travels at 0.6666, the speed of light, for four years. And then she turns around and she travels back four years. In her frame of reference, only eight years has passed. But here on Earth, because relative to the speed of light, we are moving very slow. The motion, the velocity of the Earth, you know, we're rotating on our axis, we're orbiting around the sun, our galaxy itself is slowly rotating. But compared to 670 million miles per hour, we're like negligibly not moving. We are stationary. So we experience time at a constant frame of reference, as we do. Her sister was not traveling at a negligible speed. She was traveling through huge, vast, millions and millions and millions of miles of space. And time and space are intertwined into a fabric, and you cannot freely travel through both of them. So if you're going to go that far and go that fast, you stop experiencing time at the same rate. Time slows down. You, she doesn't experience it as slowed down. But when she gets back home, the clock on her watch and the clock on her sister's, or on her sister's wrist are different. And they have done tests. They have sent rockets up into orbit with, with atomic clocks that can measure seconds to like the billionth of a second, flown it around the Earth at like 20,000 miles an hour, and it comes down and it was synced with an atomic clock at the exact same to the like billionth of a second. And when it comes down after traveling even at 10,000 miles per hour, it's slower. It's lagging behind. So 
we could, we could get into the weeds and just keep going here. I'm already over my five minutes. Um, what is my point? My point is time is a created reality just as you experience materials and space. The one true absolute. How profound that the creation narrative starts out and God says, let there be light. The only true non-referential source of energy in the universe. And time and space unfold like a rug rolling out before a wave of light. And yet, so many of us, I think, myself included, much of today is just a big public confession for me. We perceive and approach time as just some inanimate, neutral thing that we can utilitarian use and discard and abuse in whatever way we want. It's just a given. We just take it for granted. And the question I want to echo every 10 minutes through this teaching is, what is your relationship to time? How do you treat it? How do you exist in it? Are you architecting a cathedral with your time? Or are we just using time pragmatically to accomplish progress, more stuff, more space, more career, more whatever, fill in the blank? Or do we treat it with the creational dignity that it deserves, that it is a reality that we are in relationship with and there is many ways to relate to it. Some of them apparently according to Jewish law are unsacred and some are sacred. We can either desecrate or consecrate time. So, jumping back in to some scripture. Genesis 2, 15, a little bit after that creational kind of intent of the day, God taking the Sabbath day on the seventh day of creation, it says the Lord God took the man and put him, rested, that's Nuwak, he put him in the garden to take up residence, to work it and care for it. This is Tim Mackey. God introduces the ideas of Shabbat, stop, and Nuwak, rest, right around the same time at the beginning of scripture. In the creation account, God works for six days creating the world, and then on the seventh day, he rests. After six days of bringing order to chaos, he takes the time to Shabbat from his work, and then a few verses later, creates humans, and then immediately rests them, Nuwak, settles them in the garden with him. The literary structure communicates a clear link between the concepts of Shabbat, Nuwak, stop and rest. God leads by example as he rests from his work and then dwells with his people. The idea of Shabbat Nuwak, or stop and rest, becomes a plumb line theme that will even become messianic in its anticipation. The Jews are longing for an age and a day when they will enter that Edenic rest once again. Let's read a quick Jesus story, and then we'll transition to some practicals. This is from Matthew's Gospel, a brilliant little montage of stories here in chapter 12. I'm just going to skim some select verses. If you want to follow along, you can, or just look up here. He opens the chapter. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples are walking into this Jewish town, and they're hanging out with him. It's the Sabbath, and they're hungry. And his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And then they roll up into town, this small Jewish town, and they're holding all this fresh grain, like eating it, which I didn't even know you could do that. It sounds kind of gross, but. 
And the religious leaders immediately pounce on them and say, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus, a little later, he gives some examples of David and the priests in the Old Testament breaking Sabbath law and rule by these religious standards. And he says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that quote is from Hosea 6 that basically says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire you to acknowledge the Lord. I don't care about your burnt offerings. I don't care about your religious emptiness. A little further on, now they're walking into town and they step actually into the Jewish synagogue in the city. And they immediately pounce on him again and say, the religious leaders say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then from this, the Pharisees went out and began plotting how they might kill Jesus. So it gives you a sense of the intensity and the centrality that Sabbath law plays. I mean, it's in the Ten Commandments, right there next to do not murder. Keep the Sabbath, do not murder. Keep the Sabbath, do not murder. Right? Like, it is central to the Jewish way of life. And the interesting thing is, in their cultural context, they're hyper-religious, and so they need to hear Jesus say, hey, relax, like, let's focus on doing good on the Sabbath. Let's make sure our Sabbath is flexible so that it's helping people, right? But in our culture, we live in a time and a day and age where people almost gloat in not resting. We live in the inverse culture. We are so far from being religious that we need to hear this the opposite way. Jesus is correcting their wrong practice of Sabbath, but he is not eradicating the fact that we should be resting and Sabbathing. He's telling us how to do it rightly and healthily and protect the dignity of people. And he's reminding us in Mark's telling of this same story in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, the famous line is, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. Right? So he's replacing humans at the center of the practice, but he's not eradicating it. And here's the best part. This is why it's helpful to read things in context. Matthew 11, the famous verse we all love, is what precedes, and remember, keep in mind, in Matthew's gospel, there were no chapter-verse divisions here. So we have this famous line that we all love to quote, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will Shabbat Nuach you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then it goes into the stories of Sabbath. So I think Jesus adds to this, and this is not my... Um, this is a clever kind of summary, I think, of a biblical theology of Sabbath. It's not my insight alone or words. There's a great resource that we link a lot to and draw from in our church called Practicing the Way. It's a nonprofit based out in, like, West Coast. And they do a lot of work with spiritual disciplines and running, like, content and podcasts. But they break Sabbath down into stopping Shabbat, resting Nuach, and then delighting and worshiping. And I think Jesus clarifies to us the purpose and intended end goal of the Sabbath is to, like he corrects from the prophet Hosea, is to recognize God 
set apart this time to recognize God again, that's worship, and to do good for yourself and others. Right? So that's the delighting. So stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. This is the movement of the practice of Sabbath from a biblical theological overview. So, getting a little more practical. I want to... Um, at the end here, we're going to hold a little space of consecrated time. We're going to hold some time of reflection. I thought about doing it in the middle and just making you all sit here in silence for five minutes and then making you feel bad about all the not delightful, restful thoughts that come to your mind to help make my point. But I'll just say that instead of doing it now. We'll do it at the end. So this is a great, great, great quote from a Roman Catholic writer named Ronald Rollheiser. I'm going to read it at length. So this is from the opening few pages of a book of his, one of my favorite books I've ever read, called The Holy Longing. It is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem, something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it's hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction, so it seems. And he goes on for a couple pages to outline all the different myriad of voices and writers and thinkers who have basically echoed this same sentiment, believers and non-believers. Whatever the expression, he summarizes, everyone in this big list he just went through is ultimately talking about the same thing, an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that cannot be tamed, a congenital, all-embracing ache that lies at the center of the human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything else. This dis-ease is universal. Desire gives no exemptions. We have to do something about that fire that burns within us. What we do with that fire, how we channel it, is our spirituality. Thus, we all have a spirituality whether we want one or not, whether we are religious or not. And I think this quote is a driving kind of idea at the heart of even teaching on and trying to implement and integrate into our lives spiritual practices. Because we can confessionally believe anything we want. We can confessionally say we love Jesus or we believe these things. But again, back to that question, what is our relationship with time? How, does, how do we steward that gnawing ache within us as it plays out in our days and lives and weeks? Because that's going to dictate and determine 50 years down the road far more of the fruit of our spirituality than what we just said we believed in our head or the church attendance we did or whatever. What are we doing with the fire inside of us? Your system's perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. So how are we doing with stewarding time? How many of us feel rested and content and satisfied with the amount of time we have in a day or a week? Like an honest little like dipstick test is it's probably not very delightful, not very restful, not very worshipful. We have a pretty culturally, systemically toxic relationship with time. Unending scarcity. And we long for this like proverbial carrot on a stick that we just can't quite reach 
And then we come to church and we pray and we, we pray for those things we need and we pray for the carrots that we might reach them and then we never stop. We never stop and just go, enough! My life is good enough as it is. We talk about pretty in depth in the 101 how we are fundamentally creatures of worship, not rationality. And it has everything to do with this idea of desire and that fire that burns within us. And again, the question is, what are we doing? What is your relationship to time? So why Sabbath? I'll just put... According to Jesus and many mature followers of, of Him down through the ages, the Sabbath was made for us to protect us, liberate us, form us, and anchor us in time with our Creator, His creation, and our community. Our bodies... It's not evil or bad to have these insatiable, unquenchable desires. It's the source of much creativity and progress and growth. But what God would say to us, I believe, is there's six days for that. There's time for that. And then there's a time to stop, embrace and accept your limits, and say enough. <laughs> so these questions, when and where are you stopping, resting, delighting, worshiping? I'll just read some of this um, for time's sake so I don't go too long. And the honest truth for me is that a basic confessional level of brokenness, I don't like stopping, slowing down, delighting, and whatever else is on the list, I forgot. I don't like any of those things. I actually like the control of planning for those things far more than I actually enjoy them when I get there. It's like the proverbial like dog chasing a fire truck. And then you actually, the fire truck gets to the station and parks and like the dog has no idea what to do. <laughs> like what is the dog supposed to do? It can't bite the fire truck and put it in its mouth and shake it around. And I think so many of us live that way. We, we live loving the facade of control. We love hearing another sermon or reading another book. We love new information. But then if we actually get to the thing we want or the minute, I, I'm not, I mean, this, just my confession, my public confession time. It was like over a year from when we bought our house and moved into it. It's embarrassing to say this, that I just sat down and was like, God, thank you for the home. It took me over a year to slow down long enough to just be grateful and content with something that so many people don't have and may never own. And as soon as we have it, it's just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. One of my favorite Sabbath practices is to try and manipulate and convince my wife that manual labor is um, restful. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it, actually. I've been practicing for three years now, and this marks a stake in the ground moment where I've said it out loud publicly, so there's no going back now. That season is done. A new one is coming. But for, I'm not kidding. We've been trying to practice Sabbath for trying, capital T, trying, for like three years. And one Friday night, um, I think I went to 
I think it was Jesse's birthday, but he had a bunch of guys over. And everyone's like, oh, what do you, what do you guys do this week? I was like, well, I'm going home and I'm digging a ditch. And it's, it's our Sabbath. Uh, I come back home. It's like 10 o'clock. My wife is already asleep. And I'm like, oh, perfect. And somehow I have like so convolutedly twisted the thoughts in my head. I'm like, what I just really need on this Sabbath is some like time of prayer in the quiet with God. So I'm going to go out in the backyard right now. I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. I'm going to go right now at 10 p.m. And from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., I dug a 90-foot trench in my backyard and convinced myself that this was like gardening and prayer. And then the next morning, the next morning, when my, my wife pulls up, we have like some little like motion detector security cameras that turn on at midnight. And there's video footage of me, like with my shirt off, sweating at 2 a.m., like running a wheelbarrow through the yard covered in dirt. And she's like, that is not gardening. That is not rest. <laughs> and I can tell you this, in those five hours, I did very little praying. So, confession. I love this line from, uh, I have a handful of books up here, so if you're interested in these topics, um, come up after, but this is a book on Sabbath by a therapist named Dr. Dan Allender. Dr. Dan Allender, Ben loves him. He says this, the honest truth is that many of us are afraid of delight. Many of us can't even imagine or believe that God would want such goodness for us. And hear this right. Dan's not saying God wants you to be rich and beautiful. and <laughs> He's saying he wants you to experience deep rest and contentment and delight as you are right now without progressing or improving yourself or your finances or your dreams or your career or your family. St. Augustine I think said it much simpler than our buddy Ronald, the Catholic guy who I quoted for like a whole page. St. Augustine said it this way in his journal, his confessions. He said, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And I think the honest truth is the first movement of Sabbath, if you even try this, is it will largely be a negative experience right away because it will just expose all the layers of undealt with disappointment, frustration, bitterness with your life, with God. But God does not exist at the end of that carrot stick because he has consecrated himself and he dwells in time and he waits for us there. And if we keep busying ourselves with stuff and space and dominion, we will miss. We will never stop and we will never experience him. We find God in the created reality of time. So again, what is your relationship with time? We will never enter into rest until we accept that normal life is enough. We will never enter rest unless we learn to live this world free from the insatiable fears and desires that burn within us. Sabbath is an act of resistance, an act of worship, where we regularly clarify who our king is, what he has done, will do, and then we actually live like it's all true. 
the Jewish scholar I referenced earlier, Abraham Heschel, says it this way, unless one learns how to relish the state of Sabbath while in this world, unless one is initiated into the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's allegory, The Great Divorce, where like the phantom humans are walking on the grass of heaven and it's so sharp, the grass is so much more real that it like hurts their feet, it pierces their feet. Or Jesus says it a lot more bluntly, right? I think it's in Matthew 7 where he says, yeah, a bunch of you guys did like the Jesus stuff in my name, but when I meet you face to face, I'll say, I never knew you, depart from me. It's the same idea that if we don't learn to cultivate in the present, what we long for in the future, we will never reach it or even be able to receive it, even if it's slapping us in the face. It is on the seventh day that we are to stop, rest, delight, worship. We live that day like it is enough. We live in the present like our future completed selves. It's a prophetic act of defiance. So inviting us to the practice. And again, I want to be, I think it's clear whether you think this is a command from the Old Testament that still stands or not. I think this practice is an invitation to goodness that God longs for us to embrace. And I think it'd be an error, of course, to abuse it and be religious or overly strict or intense, but it would be an equal error to ignore it. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, there's kind of that famous rest passage that I didn't have time to get to today. But in Hebrews 4, verse 11, it's just this great little line, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Speaking to this kind of both Sabbath rest and an eternal rest that our hearts and souls long for. So don't get lost in the pedantic details of this or be overly rigid. Good things, well, we'll just jump in. First one, you must plan and prepare. You will, you will not accidentally find yourself stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. The natural gravitas of our internal minds, our external culture, is that raging, unsatiable fire. And if you do not put intentional things in place to do this, I promise you it will not happen. So, I mean... Practically, this looks like starting by just deciding like there's a chunk of time, whether it's an hour, four hours, a half day, a whole day in your week that you are going to try and block out. Maybe you try doing it once a month. Maybe you try doing it every other week, whatever. Maybe you take it week to week. But you have to first put it on a calendar, plan it in, and then you have to do things to get ready for that. So for us, often we set apart a day like this on a Friday night into a Saturday afternoon. So I try to get off work at four and then we have like an hour and a half to like run around, clean the house, go to Target, grab some food and groceries so the fridge isn't empty and prepare. And then the biggest part of preparing is you need to avoid sabotage. So over the course of three years in trial and error, we literally have a charging station in our basement where we go and put our laptops and our phones and we shut them down and then we slowly back away from them <laughs> for 24 hours. So some of my friends sometimes text me on Saturdays and, 
And again, we don't Sabbath every weekend. We don't, we're flexible. We don't, this isn't like a rigid thing that we have to like perform and do to please someone. So sometimes we don't do it, but lots of Saturdays or Friday nights, if you text me like, I'm not going to text you back. I might never text you back. You need to avoid sabotage. And technology is probably the biggest inroad to sabotage. It's the biggest inroad to preventing you from stopping and resting. Because you get an email, you get a text, you get someone else's urgency thrown on you, even if it's like a happy thing, an invite to go do something, right? FOMO, or it's a work email, right? You then become the absorber, like a big cloth sponge of everyone else's <laughs> unbridled, unsatiable, unboundaried desires. <laughs> I think it's helpful to, at some point in this rest, you're probably going to have a meal. You might want to come up with your own kind of rhythm and ritual. We don't have like a strict one, but we keep kind of developing and growing. Um, like Friday night, we were actually at a party, birthday party, and just left our phones at home and then came home. So we had food there. We didn't do a meal this one, but and then we just lit a candle and we like read some psalms and uh, that, that crew at Practicing the Way, I just was listening the other week to a podcast and one of the people in that group, they actually have, uh, they do Sabbath with like a community of friends um, and they all write down as they start on a piece of paper things that they're carrying that make them sad, things that they're anxious or worried about and then unfinished tasks from the week. They write them down on a piece of paper and throw them in a box then they close the box and they say, you can pick those up in 24 hours. So we tried doing that on Friday night. Um, and then from there, it's really your prerogative and creativity. The simple filter that Katie and I use and that other, I think, people who practice this use is a three-part criteria. Obviously, the first, the first two and three are all about just stopping, carving out the time, consecrating the time. But then you just need to ask yourself, is it restful? Is it delightful? Is it worshipful? Are those, is digging, and digging a trench at 2 a.m. restful, delightful, worshipful? Maybe. Yeah. Pro pro probably not, if we're really honest. Maybe certain people in relationships, or even in a certain season, relationship change. Maybe there's people who are just not restful, delightful, worshipful in a season. One day a week. Don't, no shame or guilt. It's okay to not text them back. It's okay to not. This is your space and time that you set apart. And then you have six days to give yourself unconditionally to the world, to your work, to relationships, to shopping, to buying things. And then trial and error. You build your own list. Okay, and I have a post-it note or like a little sheet of paper on the side of our fridge that has like the nine things we have like by trial and error agreed, these are restful. And then we have the nine people, no, I'm just kidding, we don't, <laughs> that was a joke. And then lastly, again, how I started, living things are flexible, living things grow. So it needs to change, it needs to change with your season of life, with your job. Are you single, are you married, or did you just move to a new place? Do you have a deep, rich community with like 150 relationships? And, Right? You need to assess these things in and out of season. Don't be rigid. Don't be religious. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was preparing this message on Thursday, and uh, I hadn't even like, been thinking about this or connecting the dots, but about two weeks ago, we 
we're part of a little thing called a greenhouse, a handful of us in Karam, a few of us like on the core team, and then a few other leaders of some other churches and nonprofits. And our buddy John and Karen are like, they're old, old guys, 60s, 70s. Um, and they're just guiding us through this like once a month meeting for the year, trying to help look at our city and how to think creatively about churches and businesses and different, like, super cool stuff. The, we were kicking it off and we did like a full day retreat about two weeks ago. And each time we meet, there's kind of a topic that they're guiding us through as we dialogue and pray and dream about stuff for our city. And um, the topic for this first one was predictably like any good Christian learning cohort or something was um, gospel identity, you know, and you get old enough, you've been in the church or around Jesus stuff long enough. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know gospel identity. It's great. Yeah, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm loved. And it was kind of just, you know, going through the motions a little bit. And then there was a point um, in the day when John and Ken were just talking through, you know, the, again, this is simplistic. You guys, many of you have heard this. But this kind of dichotomy that we see in some of the parables of living as orphans, living as slaves, living as sons. And I'm just going to read a couple things from some notes I took as they were talking through this. So orphans, orphans look to make their own home. They live insecure. They have failed and they feel like they don't quite measure up. They feel as though they don't belong. Slaves have learned to cope with that same pain in a different way. They act out trying to perform, trying to gain acceptance, trying to gain approval, trying to earn their way into that belonging. So a slave is a little more passive, or an orphan has kind of just given up, and they're just living in that commiserating lack of identity. A slave is trying to strive and kind of earn it and prove and progress and climb their way up into God's graces or the graces in favor of people. And then a son or a daughter understands that they belong. No fear of future. This is Ken's line that he always says, um, you are future people, you are stewards all that you possess is his. The Father's love must completely take over our lives. And again, this is all, you know, just nice little bullet points, Christian ideas. And, um, and they're talking, and it was kind of one of those moments where you're hearing someone talk, and then your brain just kind of goes off, and you're not, you're zoning out. And, and I just started journaling, and I said, I said, I think I've experienced this change from, like, this orphan slave mentality in my identity to a healthy gospel identity in like a really profound way in my life. It started in my mid-20s, and I think 13 years into this thing of following Jesus, like it's, there's a real part of gospel identity that's very secure in my heart. I don't resonate with the orphan-slave thing much at all. And then I literally wrote this before I prepped this message. I said, I think my real wrestle is with time. I still wrestle with time as an orphan, constantly trying to speed it up, to pull the future into the present by my own strength. And then I, I said this, I shared this out loud, and I'm like, there's other stuff I wrote out in journal, and I'm like bawling. And it was like not a moment where we're crying. It was like, hey, we're gonna do a coffee break. And I was like, can I share something? And I'm like, ah! just bawling in front of like 10 people. And uh, John Peterson, who's this old sage, this papa in the faith, he goes, oh, the love trap. <laughs> and he says, 
Sorry, son, there is no speeding it up. God will allow this vacuum to form again and again where you inescapably will be forced to ask the question, is this all there is? So he can gently come in and speak healthy identity once again. And I just wonder if like, we have such silly assumptions, such naive assumptions about time. If there's actually whole facets of our maturity and our spiritual life and our relationship to Jesus that are very diminished because we're not engaging it. We're not letting... I just think there's a whole part of our... the way we exist in the world that God wants to highlight and let the gospel kind of seep into afresh today. The last thing I, I wanted to say, last like little bullet point, the Hebrew word that's used in the Ten Commandments for, you know, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, is the word sanctify. And... It's in Hebrew, it's La, La Kadesh, Le Kadesh. I have no idea how to speak Hebrew. La Kadesh, that sounds cool. And it's the word used for consecrating a bride for a marriage or betrothal. And Josh, Abraham Heschel, that Jewish scholar who writes a lot on Sabbath, he says, the, the Sabbath day waits for you like a bride at the altar. And I think there's something... Obviously, for us, the Sabbath is just a personification for God. Like, God waits. Just that visual as we go into silence, just that visual that, like, God is just waiting for us to stop, consecrate some time, and meet with Him. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.